We'd like to talk about all things kid-related, whether it's foster kids, bio kids, adopted kids, step kids, or anything else. I think the information you'll learn here will be very valuable. We'd like to bring you guests who have either been foster kids themselves, lived with foster kids, or maybe even people who are helpers, like psychologists and caseworkers. If you have a story that you'd like to have highlighted on our show, please feel free to contact me at fostercareuj at gmail.com. We can chat and set up a time to do an interview. I'd love to be able to tell your story. We're here to inspire you to become the best parent that you can be, whether that is a step-parent or bio-parent or foster or adoptive. What we really want to do is change the world for the better and leave it in a better place than we found it. Now on to the show. Hi, and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason. And Amanda. Today we're talking with Christine Pienkowski. I found Christine after she emailed me after hearing one of our episodes about equine therapy with Rebecca Britt. Christine emailed me with a really interesting story. Most people, if you look far enough, are connected somewhere with foster care in one way or another. Either somebody you know is in care or was in care or has provided care or has been a CASA or donated their time one way or another. However, Christine comes at it from multiple directions. Christine was in foster care as a child. After that, she went to college to become a social worker and ended up becoming a foster parent herself. Today, she runs a program that uses equine therapy to assist foster kids. How are you doing today, Christine? I'm doing really good. The sun's shining. That's a nice change. (laughs) Well, I'm afraid we're about to get soaked over here, but that's all right. Tell me what brought you into foster care when you were a kid. Yeah, I was actually, um, I was nine years old when I entered foster care and I have two siblings, one older and one younger, both sisters. And the three of us entered foster care when um, my mom committed suicide. Um, At that time, my dad was in prison. He had been out of the home for quite some time anyhow. But um, so yeah, that it was at that point that um, all three of us, it's it's so different from now the way that things happen because, yeah, I don't really want to say how many years ago that really was, but um, we, we, we just had neighbors take us in when it happened. And it was um, actually a number of weeks before actually we were placed through in our state department of children and family services. So, um, and in our family situation, it's interesting because all three of us sisters went different paths. My oldest sister ended up, um, going to live with relatives. My younger sister, after being in placement with me for a while, ended up being adopted. And then I stayed in foster care until I aged out at 17. So, and I aged out at 17 because I went off to college at that time. And so they just like emancipated me at that point. Why did you end up all three going in such different directions? You know, I, I really don't, well, I know that, um, My older sister possibly was given the option to stay with relatives 
I honestly don't know how it all originally happened. My younger sister and I, all three of us, like from the day one, we were separated and went to different homes. For um, a while, my younger sister was put into placement with me in a few different homes, but her personality was pretty um, outspoken and she um, ended up being removed from the family that we were living in together because, you know, she wrote things like, I hate my foster parents and things like that. And (laughs) so she got herself placed elsewhere. Um, and yeah, and then in my own home, excuse me, I've read some of those letters in my own home. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I, I think it is interesting and in my work actually with kids, you know, as I've been an adult, I think that kids that were like me growing up often don't get the care and the help that they need because unlike my sister, I was the compliant, soft-spoken one. I just went along. You know, I was the one who just did whatever I was told and stayed out of trouble. I really um, avoided, you know, getting getting myself into trouble and, and getting extra attention in any way. So um, I think that because of that, though, there was a lot of um, a lot of things that could have been done to help that weren't done because everybody thought I was okay. Wow. I, I know that in today's foster care system, one of the key things that they try to always attempt to accomplish when it's possible is keeping sibling groups together. And I know that's not always possible, but I know that's something that, that they try to do. And so I just, I was curious as to, you know, if is that the way they did it back then? Do you know, or is it just, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that there was as much emphasis put on it at that point. Um, And I mean, I can't imagine, I'm guessing that, you know, availability of homes was just as much of a problem then as it is now. Um, And maybe just not enough research to understand the significance of that. But I mean, things were so different back then. So at nine years old, I actually, my mom committed suicide and I actually was the one who found her. And the very next day I was in school as if nothing ever happened. And I will tell you the entire time I was in foster care, there was not a single adult that ever talked to me about my history, my trauma, nothing. So I think things were pretty different. (laughs) I, I don't think that that is the typical scenario at all anymore, thankfully. Um, but yeah, that that was not that uncommon, I don't think, back then. Wow, that's that's interesting because, I mean, today I, I know a few psychologists and I know that that's not the way that they would recommend to treat that today. But I guess, you know, in times past, they did things different. Yeah. Well, I know that even in talking to my foster parents, um, there were as I was an adult, there were a couple of different um, sets of foster parents that I did stay in touch with. Um, And so as an adult, you know, after having done some of my own personal work dealing with my trauma, um, 
you know, I learned from them that they were actually instructed not to talk to us about things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that not only is that not the case, but that um, agencies and, and um, adoption placements and foster care are really putting so much more emphasis on really understanding trauma and helping parents to be more trauma informed. And for me, that is just so important. I mean, that's my passion that I want to be a part of that. Oh yeah. We have one young, well, we have three of our children whose, um, whose fathers are deceased. And that's definitely part of the conversation that we have on a regular basis. Yeah. Because it's important and it's, part of their history and it's true and I guess maybe because of the attempts of the past we've learned that it doesn't go away if you ignore it right right which I think you know that was kind of the thinking back then you know and I think especially for children who are like me who present as if oh everything is fine that's just what they went with it definitely makes it easier to assume that what you see is fine and that'll be okay we don't have to do anything about it yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, so where was your dad during all of this? So my dad actually was in prison when my mother died. And so um, I think that there was when, I, I don't know how much he actually attempted to be a part of um, our lives after he was out of prison. Um, but my oldest sister, my older sister, she actually did as she grew up because she was living um, in um, with family, um, extended family. She ended up knowing him and having a little bit of a relationship with him as she grew up. But my younger sister and I did not. Wow. How, how did she have a relationship that you guys didn't? How, how did that work out? I think because, um, so the foster care agency that um, my younger sister and I ended up being placed in, my it was a private Christian um, foster care agency, which is no longer doing foster care because of all the legalities of things in Illinois now. But um, my sister stayed in the city of Chicago where my younger sister and I actually were moved out of the city. And actually as a foster child, I lived in um, Rhode Island and I also lived in California and I lived in Illinois in between those two places and then back to Illinois. So um, I, I think maybe vicinity, I don't know. My younger sister was adopted and actually lived out of state. So yeah. I, but I don't think that either for my younger sister and I, there was no desire for there to be a relationship. So it wasn't really an issue for us. I see. Did you ever, were you ever able to rekindle a relationship with your dad or was that just the end of that? Well, interesting as this may, I don't know, this is a little weird, but he was in the witness protection plan. So after not very long after being out of prison, he actually went into that. And so then there wasn't even the ability to, to connect with him. Oh, wow. That's yeah. That's quite the twist. Yeah. So you spent seven years or eight years. It sounds like in care and you lived yeah. in quite a few different States. That's, that's an unusual thing. What led to that? Well, I think because 
yeah, I don't think that this would be very common now, but I moved with a foster family that was in Illinois and they were in the military. And so I was allowed to move with them and actually my, it was my younger sister and I both moved with them out to Rhode Island. And while we were there, that's when things kind of blew up as far as a placement for my younger sister. And she came back to Illinois and then was adopted. But, um, and then I think there was like some tension things, you know, not working out really well when they were transferring from Rhode Island to California. So I got dropped off in Illinois to live with another family for a period of time. And then after three or four months, that family decided they did want me to come live with them in California. So my agency flew me to California to go live with them, but then they ended up, and I guess that was with the idea that they were going to adopt me. That's why I was allowed to do that. And then once I was with them, they decided again that they did not want to adopt me. So I was flown back to Illinois. Wow, that does not sound like a terribly stable uh, placement to be in. No, and this is one of the things that like I'm so passionate about. And because I know that all of the foster parents that I live with, they meant well. They really did. They were good people who were doing the best that they knew how to do. But they didn't have the resources and they didn't have the support. They had no no idea how to deal with a child that was as traumatized as my sister and I were. And so it made it very difficult for them to see. I mean, even in my very quiet ways, I was very distant. I wasn't able to connect with them emotionally. And that was very frustrating for them. You know, I mean, they're thinking we love this child. We're giving her everything that she could possibly want or desire. And yet, she still doesn't really participate in a relationship with us, right? Because I didn't have the ability to. So um, that's why I think for parents to understand that just because you love a child doesn't mean that that's going to heal all of their wounds and make things be okay. There needs to be more. And I think one of the biggest things is that with everything that I had been through, because it wasn't just my mother's death, there was a lot of trauma that happened prior to that. And so I never felt safe. And that probably made no sense to them because they knew as parents, they knew I was safe, but they didn't have the skills to help me feel safe in my placement not safe enough to be able to calm down and actually leave my fight flight, you know, mindset that I was still in, that I wasn't able to really kind of move out of until, yeah, until I was much older in life. Wow. That's really difficult for a kid. I know um, some of our kids have been through some similarly difficult situations in their life and people like you who have been through so much, I would say that the the research done, the things that they've learned out of that have really led to our kids being able to get some attention, some care around exactly that. Because one of the things that we learned quickly 
is that love does not heal all. That idea, it sounds nice. It does. It seems like it should work, right? It does. It does. But it doesn't come out well in practice. And that's one of the things we've actually noticed in our own home. We watch a couple of our own kids go through that. And thankfully, there's been enough research done. There's all the, the TBRI stuff that's been done by Karen Purvis and others like her that really creates a different way to approach a kid who's been traumatized. And that makes such a difference for them. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that we do here. So I work for an organization named Hope Brains. And then I also am the executive director for a not-for-profit that I run out of my property here called the Ranch of Hope Brains. And one of the things that we have done um, uh, a couple times, and unfortunately this summer it has been canceled because of the pandemic, but um, we work with an organization that teaches TBRI. They are actually, um, they have been trained and certified to be able to provide that programming. And they come here to the ranch and families with their adopted children, the parents come, the adopted children come, and we do three days of work um, helping them with the horses and and in other classroom and group type settings, but to actually practice the TBRI skills. And horses are just fabulous partners in doing this kind of work. So, um, yeah, I know Rebecca Britt has been on your show and she's talked a lot about the significance of, of why horses. And, you know, I would encourage anybody to, to listen to that. But um, it's very powerful and it's very powerful for parents because actually as a parent works with a horse they're actually getting to practice with a, a being that actually functions very similar in the way that they think and respond to things as a child that has gone through trauma. You know, horses are very easily triggered into fight, flight, or freeze, which, I mean, that's, you know, a huge issue for kids who have been through trauma. And the other thing that's so significant for parents is that they learn that their own self-regulation, their own way of showing up in the world as they're interacting with their children, they're, I mean, we all, for the most part, are pretty unaware of that. The amount of tension we carry and we communicate so much with nonverbal communication, yet we're not really that aware of how significant it is. And just like with a horse, these children are not paying so much attention to the words as they are parents' nonverbal communication and what they feel like. So for parents to be able to learn how to self-regulate and how if they change the amount of tension that they're even carrying in their body, they can get a totally different response from a horse. That's the same thing with their children. So it's just so, I, I did not grow up as a horse person. You know, I was a city girl with all the trauma I had been through. I was not one of these little girls that's like, someday I'm going to have a horse. You know, this is what I thought about. This was not my life. It wasn't until my own children actually ended up becoming horse crazy. And we ended up having horses that I learned anything about this. And I think because I didn't come 
into my interaction with horses from a riding perspective. It was working on the ground in relationship with them and learning about how they interact with each other. It really helped me to see so profoundly how this all plays out. So that's kind of how I came into all of this too. It sounds like you've had quite the unconventional ride. <laughs> yeah, I guess in, in so many areas, it's true, yeah. Well, I know that you said you went to college right out of um, right out of foster care, which is such a rare thing. So many of the kids that I meet today are, I guess, adults now. They, uh, So many of them had so many struggles. There's a guy, Mark Crandall, that I've been introduced to, and he, he, tells, he told me his story, and um, he's got a book, uh, I think it's, own your story. I don't know. I have to look that up, and I'll have to put it in the po- in the uh, notes for the podcast. But his book, he talks about his story, and he talks about the time he spent in prison when he got out because you know he he didn't have a support system around him when he first got out. He ended up in jail, and you ended up in college with a degree in social work, and married by the time you were nineteen. That's a very uncommon path to take. Yeah, it is, and and. And possibly as uncommon, my husband and I just celebrated our 39th wedding anniversary yesterday. Wow. So, Congratulations. Um, yeah. So, um, I would like to say that it's because I was like this really goal driven and inspired child as a teenager. But honestly, I went to college at 17 years old um, because. I didn't have anywhere else to live when I was done graduating from high school. And my social worker just encouraged me that this is a good next step and I didn't have any other ideas for what to do. So I went off to college. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't because, I mean, I graduated from a high school with like 50 students in my graduating class. I was probably something like ranked maybe 47 or 48. It was not because I was really into school. I will tell you that. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I I think it it was it was just an option that was presented to me as far as a living situation. So that's what I did. Okay. Well. I've heard a few people talk about it. I actually was turned on to a podcast the other day that um, where a girl tells her story, she went through foster care and became a foster parent herself. I've seen that not very common, but it's a thread that does run through some some people, it seems. And those stories usually come from the place of someone who's who's been through that trauma and wants to do something better. What What made you decide that becoming a foster parent was the the right route for you and your husband? Well, I think because I did have an awareness that even though my foster care placements were not really healing and um, like feel good sort of situations, um, I think I did have an understanding that the foster parents were doing the best that they could. And it was just there. They just didn't, didn't know. And so I think that that was a motivation to me, um, for me to be like, 
yeah, I think that this can be done better because these are good people. They just need help. And, and so, I mean, I would like to say that while I was in college, I had this really all figured out, but I really didn't. And as a college student, I didn't even begin my healing process until I had graduated from college. I never even mourned my mother's death until I was through with my um, college, my college years. So it was during, it was actually my husband and I were foster parents while we were in college for um, a teenage girl. And then after I graduated from school, um, post some of those very difficult years of healing, I ran a shelter for teenage runaway boys. And that actually was as a specialized foster care facility. So it was only a five bed thing. My husband and I lived with the kids in placement. And, and yeah, I think it was an awareness of knowing that more could be done. And I wanted to be a part of that. That's really wonderful. Now, all these programs and things that you've done, you know, um, with the teenage boys and doing the horses and being a foster parent, how has that helped you on your journey to heal? Well, you know, it, I love that you asked me that question because one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, in, in we're going to do the mentoring program um, here at the ranch with Stable Moments, Rebecca Britt's programming. She is doing a certification training here come fall. And I, I know that mentorship is so significant for kids. But in looking at my own story, I, you know, I've been looking for like, so where did my resiliency come from? Where, where, you know, where did that, where did I grow that to be able to get past, you know, all the obstacles that were in my way? And I think it is just my personality as an empathetic, caring person. I find meaning in life and purpose in life in giving to other people. And I think um, as I have been able to do that, it has given me more of a sense of myself and healing and allowed me to deal with the more difficult things that I needed to, you know, emotionally deal with without being so very hard on myself. Like, I think it allowed me to see like my own, like goodness, my own ability to make something good come from this. And, and that was really healing and helpful. You know, that's one of the things that I talk about a lot is the ability to find the light in the darkness. We all yeah. have our traumas in life. We all have our dark places, but being able to find something out of that, that, that is worthwhile to, to create some meaning in your own world. That makes such a difference. Yeah. And I do, I have a very strong faith. That's a very significant part of my journey is, you know, I, I, I have a very personal relationship with God and, and receive a lot of direction and um, kind of motivation in my purpose through that. And I think um, that has been really significant too. That's something I see a common thread through a lot of foster families as well as that faith component. 
It's one of the things that we talked about with uh, a couple of friends of ours recently on the podcast, people that we actually know really personally. I've known them for years. And, uh, you know, I know in my own journey, I, I kind of stepped away from, from a religion that I had some real problems with as a teenager. And I, I remember one of the things that, that really got me was one day thinking, I was listening to a radio program and thinking about how the guy was talking about the need for families and, and how if one family out of every third church in America would adopt a kid out of foster care, they would all be, it was such an, I was like, oh yeah. And I was kind of in my mind, I was pointing that finger at, at all those horrible religious people who weren't doing the right thing. And that was that moment where I think I stepped back and went, what are you doing, bud? And uh, that was kind of the beginning to our own journey was just realizing that, that I think a lot of people stand back and, and just point a finger at the problem instead of becoming part of the solution. Yeah. And I love the idea that you guys have decided to become part of the solution. Well, now, you said you guys were a specialized foster parent when you had the uh, the home for the boys. What does that mean exactly? I don't think I know that term. Yeah, so it basically was um, because we were um, running a shelter that actually was owned by a community organization and so I'm, I'm not sure like legally how it is but it's basically we were licensed as a foster home that was allowed to take up to five children um and and for us we were a shelter for teenage boys and it allowed us to just very easily and quickly be able to bring in placements and have placements move in and out because it was short term. And so um, it, it just provided like the legal structure, I think, to have police, um, police officers be able to just contact us like kids came straight from the police department. If they ended up in the police department and they were refusing to go home and the parents were called and the conflict couldn't be resolved, the police could just bring them directly to us. It didn't even have to go through anybody else. Okay, I have to ask this question. We have teen boys who've come through our home. You know, we've, we've got one that's successfully launched off into the world and he's married and been off to the military. We have another one who's going to be leaving home sooner, sooner than later. We have a 14-year-old son. Um, what in the world made you think teenage boys was the way you wanted to go? Because that takes a special kind of a person to, to be drawn to that. Teenage boys can be difficult. I know I was one. Yeah, well, the funny thing was is that coming out of college, my goal was to get a job in social work, and I did not want to work with adults. I wanted to work with kids. I did not want to work with men. I did not want to work in any kind of like drug rehab thing. And I did not want to work in corrections. I'm not sure what I did want to do, but I knew I did not want those things. And my first job out of college was as a social worker in a 90 bed facility for adult men. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. This is just a quick reminder. We need all the support we can get. And the best way you could help support us is to share this episode with friends and family that you think might be interested in seeing it. Feel free to share links to it on your social media accounts as well. If you have a couple dollars and you'd like to support us financially, that'd be awesome.
We have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash fostercarenation. And I promise, we'll only use the money to help fund our therapist bill. Because God knows that man does not make enough. Coming out of prison, it was a parole program where they were able to live in this facility and go to work. And I mean, it changed my life. I was a pretty, you know, introverted. I'm only five foot, not even five foot one, um, small person, you know, and I had to learn to get past a lot of my insecurities and being very self-conscious in order to have that job. So, you know, after that, I, I had I had people threaten to kill me, you know, because they broke their contracts and I was the one who wrote up the paperwork that sent them back to prison. So after that, teenage boys just did not seem to be a problem. Didn't seem so scary anymore, huh? No, no. <laughs> and sometimes the boys would be like, really angry and say things and I would just look at them and go you know what I have had people actually threaten to kill me before I know you're angry it's not gonna help you to try to make me be afraid you know I'm like let's talk about this um so yeah it af after that experience I really felt like and and honestly I will tell you that we did have some women who ended up becoming a part of this program and honestly, boys, teenage boys over teenage girls, in my opinion, especially like when you're talking about people in a very heightened emotional state, I would rather deal with the boys than the girls. <laughs> well, it sounds like with all those ideas of what you didn't want to do, the, the old adage rings true. If you want yeah. to God laugh, just tell him your plans. Right, right. That's very true because that's exactly what happened. And so... Yeah. So you ended up working with teenage boys and then horses who you never really wanted to work with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I never, you know, I was a city girl who came from all of this past. I mean, I wish, I wish there was a way to show people like I live on this 20 acre horse ranch that like it, it looks like something out of movies. It's just this beautiful park like property that like, you would, I, I could have never dreamed of living the life that I live right now. Or I, and I never could have dreamed that I would actually work as hard as I work too either. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it, it is one of those things that sometimes, you know, you end up living a much better life than you could have ever planned yourself. I like that. That sounds really nice. <laughs> um, I did have a question for you though. Um, you and your husband were both in college when you started your journey through foster care and all that. Was this a mutual idea or was it just your idea? Did you have to talk him into it? How did that come about? My husband, I, I don't even know how to describe this. So, I mean, we actually, we started dating in high school. I was 15 years old when I first went on a date with him. So, um, you know, we started our relationship pretty young and it's kind of a joke because as traumatic as a family situation that I came from, he kind of came from the extreme opposite and 
He is just such a people person. He is. I don't know if you looked up like, you know, the most loving, caring, outgoing, people-oriented person. It would be him. You know it. So no, I didn't have to talk him into it. I don't think it was anything he ever thought of before. But as I started down my journey, you know, into the world of social work,、um, as an intern, I worked for a、uh, shelter for teenage runaway boys. I mean, for teenagers, it wasn't just boys; it was girls and boys. And they needed、um, tutors for some of their students. And so, you know, before I was even working doing this, I was doing my internship. Right away, he was volunteering. I can tutor kids. I can do that part. So he's just always been, yeah, an amazingly willing partner in in this wild ride. That's really awesome because we all need a support system, and it sounds like you really didn't have a really great support system growing up. Right, and I will tell you, I mean, his mom and dad. He jokes sometimes, like it's almost like he's the in-law, like they're really my parents, and he's the one who married into the family. His parents are are just so amazing.、Um, but I will also say something that's very significant is that he is an electrical engineer, and so he works in the business world. And it really only is because he has such a fantastic job that we do the work that we do here at the ranch because. He goes to work so that I can work at home and spend the money that he's going to work making. So, so I can、yeah. only imagine horses are not cheap. That's for sure. No. Yeah. Now,、um, back to your horses a little bit because you said there was a summer camp and things like that.、Um, yeah. I assume that there is there any cost involved for foster children and adoptive children. So the way that we do the foster care and adopt well the adoption camp that we run is through Holt Sunny Ridge. It's a partnership with them, and so basically, as a not for profit, we provide them the property for a very small fee, and then we do have a fee that we do charge. For the actual equine therapy that parents and kids are doing, but because we're not for profit, we are able to do it at a limited, you know, at a lower fee scale.、Um, but a lot of the、um, a lot of the kids that we work with, because we also do individual and family therapy, and so a lot of the session work that we do. It's it's for kids who have insurance, and that's the programming that we do through Hope Reigns. So the programming, the kids who come to us、um, who do not have insurance, we're providing services then through the not-for-profit for those kids. And as a young not-for-profit, we have not raised a lot of money to be able to provide for a lot of students for a lot of kids at this point. But we're looking forward to doing more of that. We had、um, a group of five girls that were actually being picked up and brought to us from from the city of Chicago for a period of eight weeks every Saturday morning, and we worked on、um, 
emotional, social and emotional skills with them. It's a camp that we call, the program is called Power Tools for Living. And that was one of the most profound and rewarding things that I've ever done in my career. And um, it was just, it was an opportunity that these girls would have never had in any other way. Because one of the problems in Illinois is that you, there's really not an ability to provide services, therapeutic services for kids in foster care unless you actually are chosen by the state to provide services. And we are not at this point. We're working on that, but we are not at this point. Um, and so it's only because we raised funds and had a social worker that had contacts with this one organization that she was able because she brought the kids to us and they were coming to us for free so they were allowed to do that she was allowed to do that with them so i would i mean that that's my heart's desire is to really be able to grow our ability to be able to just continually provide for that that's really awesome um another question just um being a parent myself and actually, so I take care of people with special needs and we actually, there's a program out here um, in Missouri that they run an equine program for um, a bunch of my clients and it's been amazing for them. But from the perspective of a parent being on the outside and, and having some children that may need some services and stuff, how would they know that this would be a program that would be good for them? How would families know that? Yeah, like if you had a parent and they were looking for some extra services for their for their child, um, how would they know that like an equine program would be something that would be good for them? Well, I mean, probably only if they were working with an organization that actually um, was providing them with the information and the resources to know, you know, services that are out there. And, and that is one of the things that we as an organization know that we need to do more work in helping foster parents know that this is something that is so significant um, for kids because, you know, these kids at, at a very basic level, being able to learn how to trust people in their lives again is, is a huge step that they need to take. And working with horses and having kids be able to learn how to have a relationship with a horse and to learn to trust and for that that beautiful magnificent animal to so completely trust them that first relationship is just so profound and being able for that child to be able to go on and give people in their lives a chance again, you know, to be able to to trust humans again after, you know, so many things that have happened to them. It sounds like you run a program that's probably based around the TBRI model that we were talking about earlier. I know that's one thing that Rebecca Britt had mentioned. She focuses a lot in the Stable Moments, <clears throat> sorry, in the Stable Moments program. Right, so much of what we do. And we actually, the therapist, um, that I work with, we have actually written um, a manual and a program um, for working with parents and working with kids um, who have been through trauma to um, understand 
the TBRI principles and, and all of like the neurobiology, you know, in, in kind of as simplistic of a way that we can teach it for parents to understand what the needs of these children really are and what they can do to really help. And so it's using Karen Purvis's work. Um, that was a life changer when, when I learned and when I sat in the first, I think it's um, something to connect. What is it? Um, Empowered to connect. Yes. The first seminar that I went to Empowered to connect that, that I saw um, Karen Purvis speak at, I sat there the whole time and all I could think of was, oh my gracious, like horses are perfect for teaching this concept. <gasps> That's exactly how a horse behaves. Like it's so easy to like do these, these, if parents did this thing with a horse, they would get it. They would know it would change their ability to understand. So, I mean, it was amazing to me. So yes, I mean, her work has been so profound in, in the choices that we've made as far as programming. And then also people like Bessel van der Kolk and Bruce Perry and, you know, so many of the other people who are really Dan Siegel, who are trying to help people understand what is trauma-informed care? What is going on with these kids? And what are the things that we can do that will really make a difference for them? So yeah, that's where, that, that's our goals. That, that is what we are trying to do. You know, one of the things that I hear a lot of people talk about when it comes to trauma-informed care is that oftentimes it looks like you're giving a kid a pass. When a kid acts out, you're giving them a pass. Yeah. And, and can so, you speak yeah. to that a little bit, what really is going on in their mind and, and how you can help that even when it looks one way and it may be another. Yep. And you know what? Again, I mean, I know I sound like a broken record, but having a parent work with a horse and getting them to see, okay, if you, if you interact with this horse, like with behavior modification and, you know, kind of like, choices and consequence sort of mentality what will happen you know and allowing them to do that and then having them see okay if you work with this horse understanding that they're in fight flight and they don't even have the ability to make good choices they're they're not able to use that part of their brain so instead if you can quiet your body and self-regulate and help the horse by co-regulating with them, you get the behavior that you want then. And, and they get it. They can see it. They can practice it. They, they know the difference between when they do it and their body is different and when they try to do it, but they're not allowing themselves to actually their bodies to physiologically change so they they get the change that they want in the horse you know i think the other side of that is the the parents i grew up with grew up in the generation that said um if you're acting out you're gonna you know you act up in public you're gonna get whooped in public and right. the idea was that you had to pay the price in order to in order to stop the behavior right and i can see where that came from i mean it works in some situations for sure it worked in a lot of situations in, in my house growing up because you knew better than to act up in certain situations because mom and dad would drag you out the back door of church and, and you'd have a session out there where you'd be talking to Jesus. Oh, you know? yeah. 
I mean, I used to think about like, I, I was so amazed at like how long my mother's arm was that she could reach me from the driver's seat. <laughs> in the back seat you know? Your mom had that too, huh? I always yeah, thought you were related to girl or something. <laughs> yeah. That's our mom. Yeah, <laughs> but but that was just a parenting model that that a lot of parents had at the time, and I know I don't know much about what he taught, but I know Doctor Spock came along and changed a lot of ideas in, in child raising. But I don't know that it, it was nearly as well formed of an idea as the TBRI uh, functions, because that really seems to reach to behavior and sets aside the need for to to make somebody pay for their crime, if you will. Right. And I think, and I've heard you talk about this on other podcasts too. I think that if you think about like, okay, what is your ultimate goal in parenting this child? It, it's not to get them to behave in a certain way. And when you're doing the choices and consequence thing, you know, in a very behavioral way, you're, you're just trying to get a certain behavior. And really, I mean, as parents, that's not really where our parenting goals really stop, right? It's much bigger than that. And so if you look at what you want for your child, I think it helps to be able to move past that. And I mean, it is hard. We have a lot of parents who do say the same thing. You're just asking me to just let them do whatever they want. And it's like, no, that's not it. It's asking you to work with them in a way that actually will lead them exactly where you want them. Because, I mean, we see the behavioral models not working, not for these kids who, who have experienced so much trauma. I know the, um, the consequences and choices model is a lot of what, um, what's the program called? Love and... Love and Logic. Love and Logic, that's it, yeah. yeah. A lot of what the Love and Logic pro- program teaches... And I don't think it's necessarily a, an unhealthy model for kids who are living a normal life. But when you're dealing with a kid who's who's had some significant trauma, who does have some problems with regulating that fight or flight piece, that's huge. And and I I come back to this all the time because you know modern science looks at the MRIs in the brain and they can actually see the physiological damage done to the brain because of some really high trauma, especially when it happens in those significant development points. I was talking with a friend of mine just the other day who happens to be a psychologist. And I asked him that point exactly. I said, is the trauma that occurs in developmental periods, in you know young early childhood development, in the adolescent years, does that seem to be more significant than what happens another time of life? And he said, without a doubt it does. And one thing to always know is that by the time you, you get it through middle school, the person you developed the things that you believe are who you are and all the negative things you start to believe about yourself, those are already coded into your brain. You're past the point of developing that. And so you have to really be conscious of that fact when you have a kid at this age, how easily it is or how easy it is to damage that part of their their personal self-view. And once you do that, there's there's not a whole lot of going back if you don't do the work to get back. Yeah. And that's what I think is so beautiful about the neuroscience now is that we used to think that these kids who never learned how to attach as a child, that they would never be able to do that. Right. This kid would always suffer from this deficit. Um, But I love that now we know that, no, doing these things like TBRI 
actually can change their brain back to the point where they can live in a choices consequence kind of world, right? But without doing that work, you don't have a child that can function from that model. It just will create more and more damage. It's interesting you mentioned that. Um, are, are you familiar with RAD? Yeah, yeah. Reactive Attachment Disorder. If any right. listeners aren't, just Google that one. It's kind of scary. And we, right. had, we had a young guy stay with us for how long were they here? About a, almost two years. Almost two a years. Over a year and a half. year and a half, two years, something like that. And he was he was a victim of some pretty significant abuse, and it came from his mother. There was a lot of trauma there, and there was a whole lot we didn't understand at the time. But no, he, he was, was our first red placement. Yeah, and wow. he, but he was a super sweet little boy, and I think part of it is the fact that he connected with my wife so strongly because his mother, who had abused him, was not still abusing him. As a matter of fact, now he had a woman who was taking care of him, and he was just a sweet little guy, and. By the time he went home to his father, mom was incarcerated and never to be in contact again. But by the time he went home to, to stay with his father full time, you could see the change in him was so significant. And I'd always heard that RAD is a lifetime diagnosis. It's it's kind of a it's a label that doesn't go away and causes problems for the rest of your life. Yeah, but you right. Watch him turn around, um, and we called him A. But I, I I've labeled these. The moments that I saw in him, that I called them A moments because I watched the moment where he suddenly was willing to play in public, which, you know, doesn't sound like a big thing, but for a kid who, with the trauma he had, that was huge. Oh, he, yeah. Anytime we were in public, he was sitting on my shoulders because I have one of those faces you don't approach and, and get in my face all the time. So, <laughs> so it was comfortable for him to sit up there because he was away from people. And he climbed down in, in a public place one day in the middle of a store. And he climbs down and he starts to play on the floor and just you could have knocked me over with a with a feather and the gal at the cash register oh, he's okay he says I'm like no no you don't understand I'm not going to explain it all to you but you don't understand how significant this is yeah yeah no the sweetest of victories yeah yeah you got to see the result of showing a child how to feel safe and having that change their brain. That was the amazing part. And at that point, we had never heard of TBRI or anything like that. That was early in our in our foster journey. Um, we started... Eight years ago. Yeah, we started <laughs> about a decade ago. So that was probably about eight years ago. And I mean, I'd love to tell you, we're just geniuses and amazing people. And that's how we made that happen. But, no. <laughs> but the truth is, is, you know, we just had the right situation happen. And to see a kid go that full spectrum of a swing was just so amazing. To know that what we're doing with kids can change the world because yeah. if you look at rad that I mean that can turn out some really really dangerous people right you know, for all we know we 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 avoided the next um the, the next mass murderer or something i mean it's there's there's some real psychopathy that comes out of that sometimes and to have that change happen right in front of our eyes and get to witness it and know that the world will forever be changed that's such such a, a an amazing feeling to know that you can have that much power sometimes and that's where it comes into sometimes just by showing love. Yeah. But not every kid is that way and will receive that. And so that's the beauty of these programs is it teaches parents how to deal with, with those moments and teaches kids how to deal with those moments so that they can come together and kind of co-regulate in an in a environment when right. everything is about to spin out of control. Right. Yeah, and if you look at statistically, like where children from foster care so often end up, 
every every child that we can intervene in their life and have them grow up to be successful, emotionally healthy, you know, able to succeed in society, not being, you know, incarcerated, not being addicted to drugs, not passing on to the next generation the need for more foster care. Every child that we can intervene in their life and keep that from happening, that's a huge success because it's multi-generational. Oh, absolutely. Foster care is without a doubt a multi-generational problem. And so the every opportunity we have to, to stop one can stop generations on generations. Yeah. So yeah. I, I know you have this program with um, Ranch of Hope Rains. I assume that's something you would like for people to be able to find. And where could they find that at? Yeah, so we do. We have a website. Um, it's theranchofhoperains.org. And um, so people can go there and, and see the work that we're doing. And and actually, if anybody wants to contact me, my email is also just theranchofhoperains at gmail.com. So um if I could answer any questions or provide services, we'd be happy to do that. That'd be wonderful. Have you helped anybody start their own programs yet? No, we well, we do take interns and we do work with people. And, and I said no, but actually there are people who have worked for us um, or with us who are actually now doing their own programming, um, you know, out there in other areas. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we love to teach. We love to be um, mentors in the work that we do. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the problem is big. And the more people who are participating in the solution, the better. Amen to that. God knows we are all excellent at standing there pointing at the problem. We're just not all quite so good at joining in and causing the solution. Yeah. Well, and sometimes the problem seems so big and overwhelming. It's hard to know, like, what can I do? But um, yeah, when it comes to these kids, whether you're a foster parent, whether you're just out there, you know, reaching out and being assistant to other parents who are foster parents, you know, giving rides when, when kids need, you know, whatever you can do to support other foster parents, that's a huge help, even if you can't be a foster parent yourself. Amen to that. And it sounds like you're doing a great job of that. Um, it's probably about time to to let you go, but I appreciate your time this evening and coming in and telling us all about your program. I wish you nothing but the best. I can only imagine that, that you guys are going to go somewhere because you seem to have a passion for kids. Yes. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for the opportunity to talk to you about this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope you have a beautiful evening. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.